Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. I want to tell you the story of two Americas. The America that Donald Trump lives in and the America everybody else lives in. At Trump University, we teach success. That's what it's all about. Success. It's going to happen to you. That was Donald Trump's pitch for Trump University two decades ago. He marketed his school as a shortcut to financial success. You just had to pay him and his instructors first, and then you would know everything you needed to make it big. The only problem was that it was all a scam. As a result, Trump eventually settled a civil fraud case for $25 million. And that case gave us real insight into how Donald Trump views the average American. Trump University, a series of for-profit real estate seminars launched in 2005. Ads promised that Donald Trump would handpick the instructors, but as a rule, he did not. A set of playbooks for the sales team coached them on how to market the courses, even to single mothers with three children who, quote, may need money for food. That is how Donald Trump sees America, a country that is just filled with easy marks and fools to be scammed by a millionaire who deserves their money more than their children need food. At the same time, this is the America that everyone else lives in. This is Frances Sharples. In 2022, she was scammed out of $655,000 from her retirement fund by international criminals posing as tech support and bank employees. Now, that alone would be misfortune enough, but then Frances Sharples got hit with $100,000 in taxes, taxes on the transactions where she was scammed out of her retirement money, taxes on money she no longer has. Now, if that shocks you, it is because that IRS policy is relatively new. Do you remember when Trump and Republicans passed their big quote unquote tax cut in 2017? The main thing that bill actually did was cut taxes for corporations and the ultra wealthy. And to make up for that massive loss in government revenue, Trump and his Republican allies in Congress suspended something called the casualty and theft deduction, which means that if you are the victim of a scam, you still have to pay taxes on the financial transactions involved in that scam. And that is how Francis Sharples ended up footing the bill for all those ultra wealthy corporate tax cuts after she lost her retirement money. Now, Democrats in Congress just introduced a bill yesterday trying to bring back the casualty and theft deduction to let people like Frances Sharples amend her previous tax filings and get refunds. But right now, this is still the America that most Americans live in. They pay taxes on scams because Trump and Republicans made them. Meanwhile, Donald Trump was in court today arguing that he should not have to pay back ill-gotten gains from fraud. 
New York Attorney General Letitia James alleges that Trump made hundreds of millions of dollars in profits from fraudulently inflating the value of his businesses and properties to get loans with more favorable terms, terms he could not have gotten without lying. And not only does Donald Trump think he shouldn't have to pay back the money that he made from those lies, he thinks he deserves damages for even being on trial in the first place. This was a political witch hunt for election interference, but also for getting somebody elected because you wanted to get the publicity. It's a disgrace, and they should pay me damages. That's the way it should be. They should be paying me damages. So here is Mr. Trump's version of justice in America. If you're the victim of a scam, too bad. You still have to pay taxes on the money that was stolen from you. But if Trump commits fraud, forget about paying a penalty. He's the one who deserves damages. And if you dare to try and hold Donald Trump accountable, then not only are you worthy of his disdain, you are now in the crosshairs. Today in court, Trump lashed out at the judge overseeing this case, Judge Arthur and Goron, in a six-minute rant. Trump said that what was happening in the courtroom was a fraud and that Judge and Goron had his own agenda. Trump lashing out at a judge would be bad any day. But today started with the Nassau County bomb squad rushing to Judge and Goron's house. Someone had called in a bomb threat. Now, there wasn't actually a bomb in Judge and Goron's home. That is but what's happening here is known as swatting, calling in a fake crime to elicit a massive police response in order to scare someone. You might remember that the same thing just happened to the judge overseeing Trump's federal election interference case. Police and fire trucks swarmed her house on Sunday night after someone called in a fake shooting. Someone tried to do the very same thing to special counsel Jack Smith on Christmas Day. But still... Donald Trump lashes out at all of them. He vilifies them. And he believes that he is above the law. He is not. In today's case, the Attorney General, Letitia James, is calling for Donald Trump and his business to pay a $370 million fine so that he doesn't keep any of the profit from his fraud. At the end of the day, the point is simple. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how rich you are, that no one is above the law and that the law applies to all of us equally and fairly. I trust that justice will be done. Judge Ngoron said today that he hopes to issue a final decision here by January 31st. Joining me now is Sue Craig, New York Times investigative reporter, and Mary McCord, former senior DOJ official for the National Security Division and an MSNBC legal analyst. Thank you both for being here tonight. Um, Sue, you were in the courtroom, and a lot happened there. There was a lot of back and forth. We talked about it on the show uh, earlier this week about whether or not Trump could give a closing argument. And the ruling from Judge Ngoron was no. If he wouldn't agree to these limitations, he couldn't speak. But he did end up speaking anyway, right? Right. How did that happen, and how did that unfold for the people inside the room? Well, and the limitations that were to be placed on him were limitations that would be placed on any lawyer giving closing arguments, any individual giving closing arguments, which is you have to stick to the facts of the case. And that's what Donald Trump 
declined via his lawyers to do, and that's why we didn't think he was going to be giving closing arguments today, and for the most part, he didn't. But in the last minute after a few of his lawyers had got up, it was uh, one of his lawyers asked if Donald Trump could speak, and the judge said yes. I think the judge was inclined to let it go for a few minutes because he knows this is going up on appeal. He wants to let people speak. It's not a jury trial. He's, he's, he's judge and jury. Um, and it was wild. It was exactly, though, what you would have expected. It was what we saw before. Sort of a bit of an unleashed uh, animal came out. You know, I'm a victim. Yeah. Um, went after the attorney general. Said a lot of nice, not nice things about her. And then it, it kind of wrapped up. But he definitely is playing the victim card again, that this is a crime committed against him. Um, at one point, one of his lawyers said that he deserves not what's going on here, you know, not to pay any money, but that he deserves a medal. That's the sort of rhetoric that we heard. Damages in a medal. Uh, Mary, what happened in the courtroom today gets at the heart of how difficult this balance is to strike for judges and to some degree prosecutors, but especially judges in terms of what Trump can say and do here. Right. Like there had been the official back and forth. No, you can't speak. But then when it comes down to the moment, the amount of pressure on this judge to let the former president and would-be president once again say something is enormous. Were you surprised by how this all unfolded? Well, I'm not surprised only because this kind of behavior from Mr. Trump seems like something that, you know, we've just come to to expect. And just because at one point he said, you know, he was no longer going to try to give a closing argument didn't mean he would stick with that, right? We've seen him flip-flop on things before. And I think it really did put Judge Nguyen in sort of a, you know, a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, because of course he wants there to be decorum in the courtroom. He wants the rules to be followed. And as Sue said, the rules for closing argument are that you argue the facts in the law. That matters more when there's a jury, because if you have something like what Mr. Trump did today in front of a jury, it could highly prejudice the case and the jury. Um, So I think he did give Mr. Trump some leeway because this is a bench trial, because he's not worried about a jury. uh, Judge Angoran knows what the law is. He knows how to apply it to the facts. And he wasn't really going to be swayed by Mr. Trump's antics. On the other hand, um, you know, it gave Mr. Trump a platform essentially to just speak to his base, to speak to his voters and to uh, really flout the rules that apply to a courtroom. And to me, it's just another indication of him saying, I am above the law. The rules don't apply to me. Um, Our entire judicial system is a fraud. And unfortunately, over time of repeating and repeating and repeating those things, right, because he repeats them not just in Judge Angoran's courtroom. He has said those kind of things about the case, uh, the January 6th related case in Washington, D.C., the federal case, the January 6th related case in Fulton County, Georgia, the Mar-a-Lago documents case in Florida, that that all of these are, are, you know, a misuse and abuse of a criminal justice system are not criminal. Uh, Well, those are criminal. This one, of course, is civil. Those are criminal justice. And, you know, again, I think this kind of thing repeated over and over and over again, just like his lies about January 6th repeated over and over and over again, eventually people just start to believe them. And the damage that does to our institutions and the entire branch of our government, the judicial branch, I think it's really, uh, a lo- you know, causing long-term damage. Yeah, it's a it's a form of character assassination, too, for some of these judges. And I, I want to circle back to that with you in a second, Mary. But I do want to talk about 
the trial itself, right? Yeah. I mean, this is closing argument day, $370 million being sought here. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, wow. it was a big number initially when it was 250, I think that number went up. Can you sort of, yeah. for folks who are trying to understand like the layman's terms, how the attorney general got to the number $370 million. Right. And let's back it up a little bit because I think it's important. Many people probably know, some people may not, that there was a summary judgment in this case, which means that there's already been a finding of fraud. Donald Trump is not looking at coming out at the end of this with it, you know, it going down to 10 or 20 million and there be a finding that he is in fact not liable. He has been found liable on the most serious count in this case. And the number is, is $370 million. And I'll break it down for you. I've, I've brought, brought a breakdown. Um, the $168 million is the first number, and that's on saved interest on four commercial properties. They're saying that if he hadn't have submitted the fraudulent documents that are in question, that he would have paid more. And that, that number, according to the Attorney General, comes out at $168 million. And then there's a disgorgement component of this. One is $139 million for disgorgements of the sale of the old post office hotel in Washington. That is a hotel that he famously owned when he was president. We know we hear a lot about it because there was a lot of whining and dining that went on Trump at, hotel, yes. at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. And the argument from the attorney general is, is that fraudulent documents went into getting that loan, and so the profit should be disgorged. The same um, argument goes for another loan that he got for the sale of a golf course in or in New York, um, or for the loan of a, of a golf course in New York and the sale um, of the price of $60 million, that those profits should be disgorged. Those are the main components that we're looking at in terms of the number $370 million. So now the next question is, continuing it is, what is this really going to come out of? I mean, I've yeah. covered a lot of trials and you hear a big number comes in sure. and then a lot of times it's in class, class action lawsuits and then it gets whittled down to a pretty small number. I don't, I'm going to start with, I love gambling, so I'm going to take a stab at this just for fun. But, I um, love that you say that. Most people are like, I'm not a gambling person. Don't read tea leaves. Dude's like, I'm all in. I'm all in for this conversation. Yeah, what's um, your bet, big number? You know, I was interested because I got out of court. I was listening to some of the debate on TV, on MSNBC, on, on Deadline White House about what the number was going to be. There were some very reasonable voices who came out and said, well, you know, there, there's no victim here. The, and the you know the banks are, but they're not sympathetic. Well, and the <laughs> money's not going to the banks. No, it's, it's going, going to the state. It's going to go to the state. It's going to go to the taxpayers. When you're going to general services in New York into this into the fund, um, and so that was one thing is that, that it's not like a, there's no real victim that we can feel sorry for here, and that the number might come down. And in fact, it it might come down, but I have to say I and I've thought a lot about this, and and I was sitting in court. And, and we were just leaving, you know, everything was wrapping up. And Judge and Gorin, right at the end, the Attorney General had wrapped up um, their arguments. And Judge and Gorin had one question. And he looked at the, the lawyer for the Attorney General and he says, how does this case compare to Bernie Madoff? Ah, wow. And I went, wow. Like the judge has Bernie Madoff on his, his mind. mind. And that is the largest Ponzi scheme in history. It happened right after the 2008 financial crisis. It was into the billions. And the answer was, of course, this is smaller, but 
but the behavior. But he's thinking about it. But the fact that he was thinking about that, I have to say, I would think, and he's already come in and not, he, he's, he's already come in and found the Trumps to be liable. Yes, that he's guilty of and fraud. And he has said there's a courtroom full fraud. of evidence. I think it's going to, I'm going to go out there and say, I think it's going to come in on the higher end, you know, of, it's not going to come in closer to the old number. It's going to come in closer, closer to the new That's number. That's just my feeling. I, I don't know. But I, when I, I love heard that, that you're saying, I, I mean, I when that, you say that, when you invoke the specter of Madoff, that is significant. This is, this is the judge that is going to decide that number. So you, who knows, right? Of course, we're going to know in a couple of weeks. But when I heard that, I thought, wow, that's, that's where his mind is. Mary, I just really quickly, in terms of what is being said about these judges, the, the fact that this kind of behavior from Trump, this talk about his immunity on the, at 40 Wall, the 40 Wall Street property, the talk about in recent days, the assassination of political enemies at, on a day when Judge Angoran has a bomb squad sent to his house. I mean, how are you looking at the terrain for those who seek to hold uh, Mr. Trump accountable. Well, I mean, this is what they're going to be facing, right? In every case that uh, already are facing, and as any case goes to trial, and I think the one of the most likely to go is the January sixth case in D.C. Also, the Manhattan D.A. Bragg case. I mean, this is what they know that they're facing. Uh, you know, we've heard that je- the um, protection for Jack Smith is something like four point four million dollars. Uh, in just part of his term of as special counsel for him and his staff. Uh, we know marshals protecting Judge Chutkin in DC are, you know, around the clock, uh, protecting her. The effort that had to even go yesterday or Tuesday, I'm sorry, to protect that courthouse when Mr. Trump decided to show up for arguments before the circuit is these are huge expenditures. And then every time somebody gets attacked, swatted, all the law enforcement that have to respond, think about the resources drained and diverting their attention from other important things they should be responding to. So I actually do hope that our Supreme Court justices, who are going to at least be ruling on the 14th Amendment Section 3 disqualification uh, question, they may be ruling ultimately on the immunity question. I think, I hope they are keeping in mind uh, the damage that Mr. Trump, I mean, they will rule on the cases based on the facts and the law, and they will rule predominantly about interpreting the law. That's their jobs. But I hope they are paying attention to the efforts that he is undertaking to completely, completely undermine our rule of law, our system of how we use the courts in this country, how they've been used for hundreds of years. People abide by the rule of law. They abide by judgments of the courts. They abide by the rules that the judges say in courtrooms. And he's just violating all of that. Sue Craig, Mary McCord, thank you both for your time and wisdom this evening. I appreciate you both. We have a lot to get to tonight, including what Republican runner-up Nikki Haley is willing to do when it comes to taking on Donald Trump. But first, what does Chris Christie's exit from the race mean for Nikki Haley or for Joe Biden? The great Steve Kornacki joins me to talk about that coming up next. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. 
Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Last night, former Governor Chris Christie left the 2024 presidential race vowing that he would not go quietly into that good night. Today, we learned that one platform has already presented itself should Governor Christie wish to say more. Sources tell NBC News that No Labels, the political organization trying to put together a bipartisan third-party ticket, reached out to Mr. Christie through donors and allies before he left the race. Christie's campaign says he has not spoken to No Labels, but neither the campaign nor the man has ruled out a third-party run. Former Senator Joe Lieberman, chair of No Labels, thinks it may be time for a second look. Look, uh, earlier in the year when he was asked about No Labels, he basically said uh, it was not a, an effort that had any chance of succeeding. But m- maybe the world will look different uh, to him now. And uh, I'd like to reach out to him and, and see if uh, he, Governor Christie, is at all interested in being on a uh, bipartisan No Labels unity ticket uh, this year, he, he could he could be a very strong candidate. Joining me now is America's sweetheart, Steve Kornacki, NBC News national political correspondent. Steve, not only are you our political savant, you're also a Jersey expert. <laughs> and I feel like you understand the mind of Christie better than most. Do you think it's at all in his sort of somewhere in his mind, front, middle or back of mind to to really keep in this thing as a third party candidate? I bet it's somewhere in his mind. You know, I I wouldn't say there's any I would guess there's probably not any clear intention to do it now. But I think if you think about what seemed to be animating his presidential campaign, he talked about this openly. He had that desire to meet Donald Trump on stage in the debate. He was selling that at the beginning of his campaign as the thing that would happen. And it never happened. Yeah. And, you know, now there's no guarantee if he were to run as an independent, if he were to take the no labels nomination, um, there's certainly no guarantee there's even going to be debates this fall, let alone debates that would include third party candidates. But, you know, maybe that's he's he's clearly long for the opportunity to go toe to toe, face to face with Donald Trump. And I think if he saw an avenue that would get him there, I, I think he might have some interest in it. But then, you know, it, it, you have to look at the viability question with no labels, ballot access. He has said, you know, the unpredictability of could it hurt a certain well, right. candidate? You know, there's I mean, all those issues, too. Right. Like go toe to toe to stick it to Donald Trump at, with the, the threat of actually giving it to Donald Trump. I mean, if you look at the third party numbers, they are not insignificant. I mean, they really are an issue potentially in this campaign in the general. RFK Jr., 24 percent. Cornell West, 14. Jill Stein, someone else. Chris Christie, I have no idea. Uh, and not sure 40 percent. I mean, that's incredibly volatile for for this stage of the game when you're talking about one you know, an incumbent president and a former president. Yeah, no, I've noticed this in the polling, too. It's it's a bit all over the place, but it seems that when they include third party candidates, first of all, a lot of times in these polls, they're they're throwing different third party names out there, potential third party names. And the names don't actually mean anything to people, but they become sort of a none of the above or, well, I don't like Trump. I don't like Biden. I'm going to go with Smith. That sounds good to me. So there's an element of that, certainly. But I think 
some of these that have included like RFK in them, the numbers have been coming back in some of them in the teens, in the low 20s. I've seen others still still in the single digits. But I do think back to 1992, which is uh-huh. you know, 30 years ago. It's the last time you had a third party candidate who registered double digits. And that was Ross Perot. And when that started, you know, he got as high as 40 percent in the polls at one point back in 1992. There was serious talk he could win the election. And, and that was because the economy was not in a good place and people had soured on the incumbent, George Bush Sr. And at least through most of that campaign, people had serious questions about Bill Clinton, his character, his honesty. There was that old slick willy image that he had. And so in a setup like that, people got very interested in the third party candidate, Ross Perot. And you just look at the the distaste there is for Biden and for Trump in, in, in all the polls that we see. And the setup for a third party candidate to garner more support than we're used to seeing certainly is there. Um, the volatility in the Republic, well, it, it, the volatility in the potential general matchup. And then then there's the sort of stasis in the Republican campaign, right? Broadly speaking, it feels like Chris Christie's exit is to the benefit of Nikki Haley. And everybody's talking about New Hampshire. I'm interested in South Carolina. I mean, I think if Nikki Haley comes in and wins New Hampshire, comes very close to Donald Trump in New Hampshire, that's an interesting data point. But the real proof in the pudding is whether that momentum carries forward. She's the former governor of South Carolina. Like, do you think there is a world in which she could really pose a threat to Donald Trump? You're right. It would then go to South Carolina and that would be the test, especially because it's her home state. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to see. And it's hard to see for a couple of reasons. I mean, some is just demographic. Um, Trump is doing very well. We've seen this now. He's got a, he seems to have a strong political bond with evangelical Christians. It's powering him in Iowa. And one of the reasons Haley's doing well compared to Trump in New Hampshire, it has one of the smallest shares of evangelical voters in its Republican electorate. It's like two thirds in Iowa. It's maybe 20, 25 percent in New Hampshire. Go down to South Carolina, over 70 percent. So you've got something like that working right there. And then you've just got the if she wins New Hampshire and it's on independent voters and it's on uh, voters who don't necessarily like Donald Trump, Trump skeptical, Trump hostile voters. Trump can just turn around and say the Republicans, most Republicans in South Carolina and everywhere like Donald Trump. They like him a lot. And he can make it a loyalty test. He could say, hey, look, you know, she, she went and she got votes from people who don't like me, who aren't Republicans, who aren't one of us. You want to side with her? You want to side with the media? I'm sure he'd work that into it. Or do you want to side with me? And that kind of loyalty test, everything we know about the Republican Party right now, in most states, Trump would have the numbers probably to carry with that uh, loyalty test. When you talk about most Republicans liking Donald Trump, there are the few who, <laughs> the few, the lonely, who will come out in the ice storm or the blizzard or whatever it is in Iowa and, and caucus for Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. Same thing, independence, New Hampshire. When Biden is looking at the sort of soul of those Republican voters, do you think that there is a, a world in which they say, we don't like Donald Trump enough to vote for Joe Biden? understanding that their person is not going to make it through the primary process. Typically, you know, what happens with these two is when you test the third party candidates, they do decline in support as the as the campaign goes along and people end up looking and saying, look, I, I want to vote for a candidate who has a chance of winning. So you do see them a lot of times the third party candidates perform best now and it fades as you get towards the election. But I did notice that it was a poll in Michigan last week, certainly got a lot of attention in the two way head to head. It had Trump eight points up. Uh, over Joe Biden. But then they tried a combination of third party candidates. One of the names they uh, they put in was Liz Cheney. Mm. And I think Liz Cheney, if, if Chris Christie has some appeal as an independent candidate, it would probably be to the same voters that Liz Cheney yeah. would have appeal to. And the Trump lead expanded. It expanded to double digits in Michigan when you threw that name on the ballot. So I think 
that gives us a hint of where Christie would right. be drawing. They don't like Trump enough, but not that much. Yeah. Like Chris Sununu, they'll vote for the Republican over the Democrat there's, there's, every yeah. single time. Okay, Steve Kornacki, we're going to be hearing a lot from you, my friend, and that delights me, even if the democracy may be swirling around the drain. Um, it's a delight to go. see you. Thank you for your <laughs> time and thoughts. Still more to come tonight as Nikki Haley takes that number two spot in the Republican primary, or edges very close to it. Is she actually ever going to take on Donald Trump? Plus, we'll have some breaking news as the U.S. and a coalition of allies strike at Iran-backed militants who have been attacking ships in the Red Sea to protest Israel's invasion of Gaza. Is it the beginning of a wider war? Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. We are following breaking news tonight out of the Middle East, where the United States and the United Kingdom tonight carried out targeted strikes against Iran-aligned Houthi militants in Yemen. Those militants have been attacking commercial shipping routes in the Red Sea, one of the world's busiest waterways, and declaring that the attacks are to protest Israel's military campaign in Gaza. But in a statement tonight confirming the attack, President Biden said the strikes in the Red Sea have gone well beyond Israel— affecting more than 50 nations, and that crews from more than 20 countries have been threatened or taken hostage in acts of piracy. Earlier this week, the American and British navies shot down at least 21 drones and missiles from Houthi rebels in the area, intending those shots as a warning. For months now, the Biden administration has been trying to avoid a wider conflict in a region already in turmoil. But Houthi rebels have continued to target the shipping routes, and their leaders have said they are comfortable with a direct confrontation with America. Joining me now is Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor in the Obama administration and co-host, of course, of Pod Save the World. Ben, thank you for being here tonight. This seems like a, just an extraordinarily difficult line for the White House to walk, calibrating how much is enough to try and get the Houthi rebels to stop? And how much is too much that will draw the U.S. into a war with Iran? I mean, what do you make of the decision here and the sort of careful calibration? Uh, I think this is a pretty major escalation, Alex. Um, There's no question that the U.S. military has a responsibility and a right to protect shipping in the Red Sea. Uh, There's a commonly understood right to freedom of navigation, the right of ships to proceed without harassment. And so the idea that you would take military action against Houthi ships that are harassing those container ships and other vessels in the Red Sea, including U.S. military vessels, um, that's one thing. To go after 
the Houthi kind of command and control infrastructure and the Houthi uh, bases in Yemen, that is a different thing. And that's what the administration had restrained from doing until this point. And the reason why is once you do that, you potentially open a Pandora's box because they are connected to a network of groups that could take action against the United States in Iraq, uh, that could escalate the war across the region in Yemen, that could ultimately lead to a regional war that draws in Iran. And so the stakes in this are enormous. The viewers may be looking, you know, why does this matter so much? It's because if this gets out of control, if this spirals, this could lead to a truly regional war. And that's what we want to avoid. I mean, and that was, I, I remember shortly after October 7th wondering, and I think I asked John, John, John Kirby at the time, you know, what prevents this from becoming an actual war between the U.S. and Iran? And here, we, not that I'm some sort of Cassandra, but, you know, that, that was the, the Iranian sort of shadow in all of this has been constant. And I wonder, you know, against the backdrop of South Africa calling Israel uh, to the International Court of Justice for uh, claims of genocide, the degree to which the U.S. is dramatically, drastically uh, rethinking its relationship to Israel in this war in Gaza? Well, look, the, the reality is the longer the Israeli military operation goes on in Gaza, um, the more there's risk of escalation in various places. We see right now the risk of that escalation in Lebanon, where Hezbollah could be, which has been going tit for tat back and forth with Israel, that risks boiling over into a conflict in which there's essentially a war in Lebanon. You see it in Iraq, where the U.S. has taken military strikes in Baghdad, which we rarely do, um, because of Iranian-backed militias taking strikes and shots at U.S. military personnel in Syria. So Iraq could boil over. And now you see it in Yemen with this U.S. military action against the Houthis. Um, and, and look, there's good reason to want to protect shipping in the Red Sea. That is an absolutely valid and necessary objective. At the same time, you're not going to defeat the Houthis militarily with just a few airstrikes. Keep in mind that there was a multi-year war against the Houthis backed by the U.S., I think a mistake in the Obama administration to begin to support the Saudi-led effort to go after the Houthis that did not eliminate the Houthis. So you're not going to eliminate them in four airstrikes if several years of a military campaign didn't. And so I think what we're seeing now is just the risks that the longer the war goes on, the longer this goes on in the Middle East, the more one of these pots could boil over the more that there's a risk to U.S. service members. And the administration is balancing against trying to protect things like freedom of navigation, trying to deter Iranian-backed proxies from doing things to escalate. But at the same time, we're kind of getting drawn in. There's a quicksand component. And I can say this, Alex, as someone who's been in the White House for eight years, the Middle East has a kind of quicksand component where it can draw you in. And the last thing anybody wants is a full-scale regional war. Um, but unless there's some diplomacy here, um, that's the momentum that I feel happening right now. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, and you talk about that, you mentioned the Obama administration with Yemen. Joe Biden was, of course, part of that administration. Joe Biden oversaw the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. He knows well these lessons. I, you know, can you talk a little bit about just sort of the chain of command in terms of the decision making here? I ask this mostly because the secretary of defense is in the hospital and has been there for some time. He's still issuing some statements. But this is you've been inside these rooms. I mean, this is very much Biden's call. It always is. But given the fact that his defense secretary is not there, can you talk a little bit about how it sort of works in a, in a crisis point like this? 
Well, I think it becomes a very White House centered thing, because when you are taking military action that is new, right? I mean, it's some it's one thing when there's a strike against another ISIS target or another Al Qaeda target, um, or even in the context of the last several weeks uh, against a kind of Iranian backed militia that is harassing our troops in Syria. This is a new thing to go after targets in Yemen, Houthi targets in Yemen. That crosses a new line, a new legal line, a new uh, military objective. And that ultimately becomes a White House decision, a presidential decision. So I'm sure there have been a flurry of meetings over the course of the last several weeks about how do we stop this harassment of shipping in the Red Sea? How do we stop these attacks uh, on U.S. military vessels in the Red Sea? Um, you have those meetings at various levels, and ultimately it gets teed up for President Biden. Uh, here are the, uh, here's the spectrum we can do. We can continue to go after the Houthis in the Red Sea when we see them, or we can go after them in Yemen. And ultimately, that comes to his desk, and the Defense Department is going to carry that out. The Defense Department presents a range of options. Here's what we can do. We can do this in the Red Sea. We can do this in Yemen. You can decide how far to turn that dial. And I think what we see with President Biden today is a degree of frustration with what the Houthis have been doing in the Red Sea, but also a degree of willing to take some risk here, because the Houthis are likely to respond. And it may not just be in Yemen. It could be other Iranian-backed militias in Iraq going after U.S. targets there or the U.S. embassy there. Um, he's risking that in favor of trying to send a message that, hey, back off the shipping in the Red Sea. We mean what we say. Uh, you can't do this. Indeed, the Houthis have said preemptively they are comfortable with a direct confrontation with America. And so we leave it there. Ben Rhodes, my friend, always good to see you. Thank you for your expertise and time tonight. Coming up, rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. That has been former Governor Nikki Haley's tepid critique of the Republican frontrunner since the start of her campaign. Should we, can we expect anything to change if it becomes a two-person race? That is next. I believe President Trump was the right president at the right time. And I agree with a lot of his policies. But the truth is, rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. I personally think President Trump was the right president at the right time. I agree with a lot of his policies. But the reality is, rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. I agree with a lot of Trump's policies. I think he was the right president at the right time. Chaos follows him. Is it chaos follows him or does he create the chaos? What, I mean, that sounds so passive. He Chaos follows him. I mean, I, rightly or wrongly, you call it whatever you want to call it. But when you feel it, it's chaos. When you feel it, it's chaos. Rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. Throughout this campaign, that has been Nikki Haley's line about Donald Trump. It's not that she disagrees with Trump's policies or his behavior. It's just that he's plagued by some sort of horror movie curse. Chaos. It follows him like a, like a bad smell or a piece of toilet paper stuck to his shoe, rightly or wrongly. But now, for the first time, former Governor Nikki Haley is in a position to become Trump's main rival. And so last night, we got the new gloves off Nikki Haley, the one who finally isn't afraid to criticize Donald Trump. I think he was the right president at the right time. I agree with a lot of his policies, but his way is not my way. I don't have vengeance. I don't have vendettas. I don't take things personally. 
I mean, I guess that's better. At least obliquely suggests that Donald Trump is somehow responsible for his own behavior. But this is hardly the kind of actual criticism you might expect from someone who's trying to beat a man running double digits ahead of her for the Republican nomination. The truth is, when it comes to Donald Trump, Governor Haley does not have a hard line to take. She's already committed to pardoning Donald Trump, even if she is if she is elected president. She has already committed to voting for Donald Trump if he is the eventual nominee, even if he is a convicted felon. And that has left us in a position where the closest thing we get to an actual rebuke of Donald Trump's lawless anti-democratic extremism is this. Do you agree with the argument Donald Trump's lawyer made in court that a president should have immunity for any conduct, including an ordering the assassination of a political rival, unless that president is impeached and convicted by the Senate for that offense first? No, that's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, we need to use some common sense here. When your political opponent is advocating in court for the right to assassinate his rivals, a group that, by the way, could at some point include Nikki Haley, Common sense dictates that one should make a very clear contrast with that rival, a top priority. Nikki Haley is not ready to take on Donald Trump, and she probably isn't even interested. I'll talk to former Republican strategist Tim Miller about that and more coming right up next. If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. That was the first GOP primary debate of this cycle. Former Governor Nikki Haley was very quick to raise her hand and has ever since then been quite cautious in the extreme as far as expressing any real criticism of Donald Trump. So now that Chris Christie is out of the race and Ron DeSantis is slipping even further in the polls, the likelihood of a two-person race between Nikki Haley and Donald Trump is increasing by the day. So does anything change? Can anything change? Joining me now is Tim Miller, writer-at-large at The Bulwark. Tim, can any, does Nikki Haley want anything to change? I mean, I, I will say I think it's kind of awkward to imagine this becoming a two-person race. I have a hard time imagining Nikki Haley's digital team is going to be setting up a TrumpLies.com website that she will invoke 32 times in the next debate. Yeah, I mean, rightly or wrongly, it doesn't seem like she's going to be taking Donald Trump on anytime soon. Uh, I, the whole thing is very bizarre. You know, Alex, I remember when I was in Iowa a few months ago, I was asking a Haley ally about this. It's like there's no other analog to this, like a contest where one candidate is winning by 30 points. They are just viciously insulting the the second place candidate, calling them a bird brain and, you know, uh, saying they're warmonger, I, you know, every, anything under the sun. And the candidates that's losing by 30 points, the only thing that they can say to criticize the leader is something very passive, very pa- passive voice, passive aggressive. I, I, it is it's not how any campaign that I've ever been on or ever seen that wants to win has ever run itself. And so, you know, it's hard to not come to the conclusion that she's not really trying to win. I, I don't, there's not a real path to victory. So, uh, you know, I don't know if this is a, if she has 2028 20, on her mind or if she's just liking the attention or if there's a VP, I, I can't get inside her head, but, but this is not a campaign to win. She's not running a campaign to win. So I, I don't think we need to pretend like she is. But you, what is interesting is her uh, sort of 
desire to curry favor with Trump extends to her desire to curry favor with the Trump base and leads her into these strange intellectual rabbit holes where she's asked about the root cause of the Civil War and can't say slavery. I mean, the sort of soft-shoeing around the elephant in the room extends to literally any topic that treads on you know, a, a, a desire or an animating idea held close to the heart of the Trump base. It's so weird. It is. And I think Chris Christie kind of had her number on this one, right? Where he said, said she doesn't want to offend anybody. She wants to pretend like she does tough talk, right? And, you know, she wants to say that she's tough when she's talking about an easy target, right? But when something comes up where the MAGA base or or the even the evangelical base, I mean, the non-MAGA evangelical base is at odds with the types of voters she needs to win in New Hampshire, uh, you know, she doesn't know what to do. Uh, it was true about the Civil War. It was true about abortion. It's true about answering what to do about Donald Trump and pardoning him. And so it doesn't feel like she wants to offend anybody. And, and you end up with a campaign that's kind of for nobody. And, and I think that where she's going to end up is she'll have all of the people that didn't want to vote for Donald Trump in the first place, you know, which is the Chris Christie voters and a handful of her voters and maybe a small minority of Ron DeSantis voters. The problem is that's not enough to win any, maybe it's enough to win one primary in New Hampshire where a lot of independents show up and, uh, but, but it's not enough to win a nomination of the Republican party. So it's kind of like, why are you putting yourself in this awkward situation where you're not telling the truth about how you feel in order to run a campaign that is destined to lose? Maybe she just really likes debating Ron DeSantis. I say that with a little bit of irony. Tim Miller, my friend, thank you so much for joining me at the end of this very busy news night. I appreciate you. That is our show for this evening. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.